welcome to the Messy Antics Podcast, a podcast about all things Messianic Judaism. Each episode, we will be sharing our opinions as we tackle some of the biggest issues in Messianic Judaism. Now, here's your hosts, Rabbis Eric, David, Jonathan, and Toby. Hey guys, thanks for joining us for another episode. Uh, we are, uh, as we said last time, going to uh, be working through a series of episodes dealing with our thoughts on uh, uh, how to better formulate a more formal arrangement for the Messianic Jewish movement for a, a, a better longevity of future. And we're not saying we have all the answers, but just thoughts. We're just throwing out thoughts and, and ideas that we have. Um, and, uh, and, and if they're helpful, awesome. If they're not, then uh, we tried. So, But with that, we're kind of just picking up where we left off on the last episode, which is on the conversation of education. Rabbi Toby, Rabbi Jonathan brought up some really good points um, in in dealing with education and, and what is or isn't required, what should be or shouldn't be required. And so we wanted to kind of flesh that out a little farther um, in uh, in this episode. And um, I, I, I'm a huge proponent for adequate education that doesn't mean it needs to be too much education uh but like we were talking off the episode after we finished up and uh we we were talking about how a lot of like uh i went to a christian college for my undergrad it was a concentration in masculine jewish studies but it was a christian college a christian liberal arts school to be honest uh and uh so at a christian liberal arts school in order to get my pastoral ministries degree with a concentration in masculine jewish studies which realistically could have been a year and a half two years max where of, of, of classes, I also had to do a full uh, um, four-year program that included all of the math and science and education, or math, science, and, and um, history, and all that other stuff that I really didn't need. Like, it was, wasn't was going to affect anything, and so uh, uh, I think that's kind of absurd, but one of the things that I do think is really interesting in the discussion of moving from fellowship to a more formal organization is, in a more formal organization, uh, again, as we said last time, and Rabbi Eric brought this up, if we stop thinking about only our localized community and start thinking of the greater kingdom kingdom um, and the greater Messianic movement, if we are willing to financially sow into uh, an organization like that, it could be feasibly possible to set up a rabbinic yeshiva, legitimate yeshiva program that uh, uh, younger leaders, younger people interested in going to uh, to become a Messianic rabbi or people that are not younger but are interested in becoming a Messianic rabbi feel that calling even later in life are able to go through a kind of core curriculum that's needed for education to qualify to be a rabbi, which I think would be absolutely great. I mean, uh, the UMJC is Rabbi said, uh, Rabbi Toby said, uh, you know, they're they're This isn't a complaint about them. They, I think, in some ways, education wise, they've solved some problems that I think is a little lax on the other side. But the UMJC has a very strict. You almost need a master's degree. It's pretty close to a full master's degree to uh, to become a ordained UMJC rabbi, plus a bunch of other stuff. Within the IMCS, it's just a series of random yeshivot classes that you have to take, and there's not even necessarily a categorization on you need to take this kind of class, you know, one of these and one of these and one of these. There's a little bit of that, but there's like hundreds to choose from, and you just pick and choose what's, you know, just to get it done and out the way. And it's um, pass-fail. Yeah, exactly. Like, and... I had to um, when I wrote mine when I did my papers and sent them in it, it was I didn't hear from anybody for the mm-hmm. longest time and I was like hey did you get my paper and I didn't hear from anybody so you can't check your because you can't check your you don't have a transcript to check and I would get an email back saying oh yeah hey Toby got it you passed yeah. I was yeah. like okay 
See, I think if we had a more formal organization, it would be relatively simple to say, okay, yeah. we have these online classes, like actual legitimate, you sit through a class yeah. one a Zoom, day, two days Zoom a week, class, Zoom class, whatever, um, you know, certain number of assignments, whatever. Um, and, you know, we have these 15 classes that you have to go through or, or, or 20 classes, whatever it is, the, the core is the bare minimum. And there'd be, you know, say three or four classes dealing solely with um, uh, um, hermeneutics and homiletics, uh, several classes dealing solely with uh, the traditional liturgical service and developing a Messianic Jewish service that is respective of both tradition and contemporary uh, concepts, a, um, uh, 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 several leadership development courses, like how do you deal with problems that arise in your congregation? How do you create a budget? How do you organize this? How do you handle you know these kinds of things? Uh, but have requirements and then also have four or five electives that yeah. that uh, feed into that. Yeah, I'd actually like to see a two-part structure. And, and I actually was sitting here thinking about the word structure and, and how we keep dancing around the word denomination. But I think what we're really asking for is more structure, yeah. whether we actually established a separate thing called the denomination or it just grew within yeah. what we have now. But I would love to see a structure that did just what you were saying, that provided a a one or two year course like an associate's degree kind of setup where you did Hebrew and Greek you did some uh, you know overviews of the scripture yeah. liturgy those kind of things but I also think it should be attached to a um, mentorship mm-hmm. or a uh, internship yeah. at a congregation uh, or ministry structure where you got be in Orthodox Judaism, when somebody you, you go to yeshiva and you're studying, which is a school, and but you in order to be a rabbi, you have to sit under a rabbi who then is actually the one that gives you smicha yeah. or ordination. Uh, and so I think both of those things would be together. Yes, if, if we could, and and funding for that would come through the organization. Yep. Um, or even if they went to a structure like uh, some schools do. For instance, my other son, he went through school and he prepaid for his classes. And as long as he passed the class, he got reimbursed for that class. And as long as he finished the course, he got reimbursed for all of his expenses. So that would help uh, in some way with that so that somebody would actually should complete the course so there yeah. wasn't money thrown good after bad. Yeah. But having a course structure that was designed specifically for Messianic Jewish studies yeah. that was were courses that would actually help in the process of leadership and then an internship that went along with it that allowed them to work out those things, walk alongside somebody, experience, sense. yeah, going to hospitals, visiting people in, in prisons, going to home visitations, doing the services, doing the all of the structural stuff of a congregation, leadership role that would give them that value also. I think that um, when I and, and the thing is, I just want to go back to those uh, talking about those classes that the IMCS offers. Mm-hmm. The teachings are really good. Yeah, it, I mean, I I really did enjoy them, and there were some there was some revelation in them, and there were some things that I got out of them. The problem is, is that you know when you when when you're talking about a situation with a student and a teacher. 
uh, I, I taught public school for 15 years, and one of the things that they would always talk to teachers about is making sure you're giving feedback to your students. Mm-hmm. It's not that there's no onus on the students. You know, they do the work and stuff, but the teachers also have to give feedback. Yeah. And, and, and I um, – there, there was – so I wrote this paper, and I worked really hard on it. Like, I know I worked hard on all my papers. And just to get just to get you passed and not – Here's you know here's some notes on what you said about this. Yeah. Maybe consider this. Um, you know this is really good. This isn't so good. You know this might not be a you know I'm not going to sit there and say my theology my theology is 100 percent sound. You know everybody has issues in their theology. We're all working. We're all sure. growing. Yeah. And we all have to be corrected. You know what I'm saying? There might be things we believe about our theology that aren't correct. And I would love to have known that instead of. You passed because yeah. what it makes me think is you don't really care who's coming through the gates through the gates right now. <clears throat> yeah, and 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 because you know any Joe Schmo can buy a CD, DVD and listen to it, and, and yeah. of course we do have the experiential. Um, we do have the you know everybody who's in the ordination program as a rabbi and assistant rabbi is in that position. So they are learning. That's not to say that there's nothing, but the actual academic portion of it is lacking on the IMCS side. Definitely. Yeah. So maybe if there was even just someone who would call you who had actually read your paper and say, I read your paper. Let's discuss it. (laughs) There's the key. Did they read it or did they just go, ah, you wrote it. Okay, here you go. I've actually thought about this day. I don't even know where's the, where are the records of my transcripts? Yeah. yeah. I've kept all my papers for the sheer purpose of being able to say, I actually did this. I did this because I'm afraid that maybe they'll say, well, we don't have your papers. And I'm like, which oh. it has happened to people. It happened to my father-in-law. <laughs> Not naming <Right>. any names. <laughs> so I, you know, now that doesn't mean I, I want to say here, you need a master's degree. I yeah. think that's too much. Yeah. Just yeah. I think, right. I think if there's, if, if, if the Lord puts it on your heart to go extra, like I'm working on a master's degree right now, not because I need it. I'm already ordained, right. uh, but I'm working on one because I want it because I have a goal outside of the congregation for it. But I don't think that it should be an obligation to get a master's level education. Uh, uh, I do think master's level classes, the the education side of it, not the actual degree is the better word. I think master's level education is necessary. Mm -hmm. Master's level uh, degree is not. So like all, even in the IMCS, the IMCS um, um, presents their yes you vote classes as uh and saying yes you vote classes is kind of redundant but uh present their yes you vote as uh um uh grad level classes and the guys that teach them they are grad level yeah. classes or, lo- or um, more yeah and so that's great i think that is that it should be that way um but i don't think that it needs you know i i do feel that the other side of the argument is is a little too far to the the, the other side of the pendulum there is that necessity for education yes but there's also also the necessity for the practical application which is what rabbi eric was saying which which is what you two are experiencing and i don't think for me like 40 years ago when the congregational aspect of the messianic jewish movement was starting and it was literally four or five random congregations that had started sporadically separate from each other around the u.s and they came together and said hey we should be in fellowship together and that's what birthed what is now the congregational movement of the messianic jewish movement um 
That's great. And I understand that over the course of the next 10 to 20 years, it became necessary to go, okay, hey, there's another congregation in that state that's like us. Let's bring them in. And there's another one in that state. Let's bring them in. And now let's ordain those rabbis under this fellowship. I understand that. 40 years ago, 30 years ago, 20 years ago. But now we should be raising up leaders to start congregations, not letting people start congregations and then bringing them in once they've already done that. Like a lot of these guys that we bring into the organization have never been through our ordination process. They've never been through any of our educational classes. They may have never had any actual legitimate training in ministry. And that's not to say that it isn't, you know, oh, God gave you a calling. You need to do this. Like that's a part of it. Yes. But there is an, a, a practical side to that training that's necessary. Um, and, and if we're not going to mess people or if we don't want to mess people up more, I think those that have walked the walk and lived the life need to be sowing. And it goes back to what we said last time, you know, that, that model ship of the priesthood, 30 to 50. And then after 50, you're raising up, you're educating, yeah. you're training. Uh, and I think that's where those those yeshiva classes should be focused at. Yeah, and, our, our model for raising up leaders should not be tossing someone in the middle of the ocean. And then if they are able to tread water for two years, then we'll send a ship by to yeah. pick them up and yeah. bring them to land. It should be raising up leaders, mentoring, yeah. uh, and, and building a structure for that. And uh, some of what each of you said dealt with this accountability mm-hmm. factor that, yeah, the, the students are accountable to get their work done, but are the teachers being accountable to those students? Yeah. And is there relational building? And that goes beyond just the education. For instance, I've been my congregation here in Pensacola has been part of the MCS for uh, almost 25 years, I believe it is. And not once in that 25 years has the regional leader of our organization attended our congregation or dropped by to visit or or checked on us or, you know, now check on us by email or by phone, but actually shown up. Nobody in my congregation, if they didn't go to the Southeast Regional, would know who our regional director yeah. was because they've never been here. Now, the reason that's important is, uh, for instance, we, we just had last year a leader uh, pass away at one of the congregations I'm on the board of. Now, that congregation knows me because I've been there. I've been there to fellowship. I've been there to speak. There's a relationship built. So when that leader passed and I was brought in with the leadership team to help set up a plan for a go-forward strategy, they knew who I was. They had a relationship with me and with the other people involved so that they didn't push back like, who is this that's going to come tell us what to do? Uh, When you build relationships like that, when a crisis does arise or a leadership leader falls or or something happens there's that relationship building and the same thing with students if you don't feel like your teacher teacher cares about you beyond getting paid to teach their class and you get a little note that says you passed or an email that says you passed rather than actual communication yeah you feel like it's a one-sided relationship so I'm going to actually toss this back to, to Rabbi Toby because you bring up an interesting point, the idea of the teacher being accountable to the student, right? Well, Toby comes from an education background. That's what he did for was it, 15 years as a school teacher, right? Um, would the way that you feel like your uh, classes were handled have ever flown in the school system? Oh, no. No, you would have gotten in trouble for that. So when, when you would make assignments to your students, uh, how quickly were you uh, expected to, uh, to give feedback on it? 
within the week of usually within the week of um, putting that assignment in, you were supposed to give them feedback and put the grade in. Yeah. So and and if 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 that it, well nobody does pass fail in public school, which we know that. But I'm just saying, except for during COVID. <laughs> right. Basically. But, Sorry, that was a bad joke. But the, what I'm saying is, is that if I could if I could do that for over up like a, yeah. let's just say on average 120 to 130 kids every yeah. day you know on a day-by-day basis whoever they have that's over that could could you know at least you know look at these and i mean because it's 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 six papers over a two-year period yeah it's i mean i've i've had to grade you know 30 in one sitting which you know? also which i also feel like that's you, know, you six classes one paper per class is not a substantial enough baseline to understand where that student is coming from, whether they've perceived what you taught and interacted with what you taught and so mm-hmm. on. I think there needs yeah. to be a few more assignments. In well, that. I will say having the like for I think it's for the credential, it's 10 pages for one class. Mm-hmm. I, I think for what it is, it's adequate. Yeah, but it should definitely be there should be. You know, t- ten hours in one paper, I think, or you know, they're what eight-hour classes usually. I think they're eight, four, six, it's somewhere four, anywhere from forty. I know hours. they were long in yeah. one day. It's six. Yes. At least that's how many At hours. Least six. Yeah. Now okay. I will tell you, when I took it, it was more. We we had two-day yeshiva classes that were all day long, and then my papers had to be eighteen to twenty pages, and one of them had to be twenty-eight pages. Yeah. But even at that, I think, and, and this is something I think Toby brought up that I, I appreciate it because of his school background, is if you're only doing six or eight page papers over your course, there's no means for assessing growth, assessing progress, assessing those kind of things. And I think somewhere in education there's a requirement to assess maturity and growth and process. And and if all you're doing is looking at a paper by a student and you're only going to have that student one time to do that, the teacher doesn't have the ability yeah. to measure, did, did they learn something? Are they advancing or can those I, kind of things? Can I just say you using the word maturity makes me really uncomfortable. Why is that? Because I refuse to be mature. No. Oh, uh, wow. <laughs> don't mind getting older, just hate to grow up. Grow up. Um, uh, yeah, I think, you know, and the cra- the thing is, like, with, with these, with the, speaking specifically to the issue that the MCS yeah. does, there is no reason why, if you have qualified rabbis, that you can't actually, like, parse out, you know, all right, rabbi so-and-so. These ten classes, like we're going to give you a year to watch these ten. Like this is already an ordained rabbi, you know, someone who maybe has even served on the committee or something. Here, watch these ten. Know these ten. You're responsible for these ten classes. If any papers come in correlating to these classes, you know, you're responsible for reading it, going over it, uh, grading it, and then communicating with that student to make to talk about and that was just a minimum yeah that 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 would just be a good starting place to make those worth more than well, they are and, and and even if they didn't do it that way mm-hmm. every in, intern interim every rabbinic intern yeah ordination process person. in the ordination <laughs> process is assigned somebody that is their mentee or yeah. mentor whatever mentor 
and that person could interact with. In other words, if if uh, Rabbi Jonathan was doing a, a yeshiva course and he did his paper, he should have to send that paper to that person who's his mentor who could then evaluate discuss with him send it back and build and then have it turned into the professor and that way that mentor would have the interaction and this relationship and see the growth that the teacher may not be able to do but that's part of the problem currently is that that individual that the person in the ordination process is supposed to communicate with 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 exception of the rare case and and the person i was corresponding with was one of those rare exceptions with exception of the rare case are typically liberally best described as a liaison not a mentor and that's where the problem lies exactly is it needs to it, it can't be somebody that's like oh i'm super busy so i'm going to throw an hour a month into dealing with this and i've got to fit these eight guys that are under me in this hour a month or whatever it is like there needs to be like that was one of the things i had rabbi uh and i'm going to brag on him for a minute cuz i love uh, i said last time i don't throw names out for negative but for positive i'm going to brag on people right rabbi michael Wygant is who i corresponded with during my ordination process and i absolutely loved that he was was very intentional about being involved in the process. Um, and we actually went through a pretty serious, like traumatic experience in ministry during that period of time that he helped mentor through and, uh, and would call me on like a weekly basis. Hey, I just want to see how you're doing. What's the situation like? What's going on? Uh, he meant was uh, by default was kind of mentoring me through us starting the congregation, uh, in Daphne and so on. I mean, just absolutely. As a matter of fact, he talked to me afterwards. He goes, look, I just need to let you know you were really communicative on this and you've kind of really set the bar high for everybody else I have to deal with. And I don't know that anybody else is going to meet it, but he was very intentionally involved. And uh, I, I think that, and I, again, I won't call it names or negative, but I don't think that's been the case for most of the people I know who are going through or have been through the process is they're not intentionally involved. And so it, it goes back to that idea of shepherds of shepherds. Right. There needs to be a, a group of shepherds of shepherds who are going to run that. Uh, I like the idea you suggested about, you know, those uh, Rabbi Jonathan, about those uh, rabbis who are ordained being assigned a certain number of, of classes or topics or whatever to, to grade and, and correspond on, um, except that at least currently, I don't know that an overwhelming majority of our rabbis are qualified to do that uh, from an educational background. That's not to say that they aren't qualified knowledge, experience, etc. cetera. Um, but it's one thing to, um, it, it, it's one thing to, um, to, to teach a class. It's a whole other thing to be able to grade and give feedback as an educator sure. would. Yeah. And maybe that would be a good, like um, maybe that would be a good session at a rabbi's yeah. conference, like have someone come in and, you know, bring the rabbis in and then, uh, several of them. And if this became a new thing, and, and again, like I, I'd love to see the future of messianic education be much bigger and much a whole lot better, but just dealing with these, the, yeah, you got to start somewhere. The yeah. Distance classes start with somewhere, you know, have a session for the, for the rabbis at the rabbis conference where it's like, okay, so, um, here's how you grade. Here's what you look for. Um, and it doesn't have to be like every super specific thing. Like for example, they can, they can say things like, by the way, if you're not good at copy editing, like here's where you go learn that here, yeah. here's an online thing where you can learn how to copy yeah. edit because 
you know, or here's a website you can copy paste in, and it'll do right. most of it. Or it'll do it for you. Well, and I think part of education is like if you're going to be writing or working with writing, like yeah. you actually have to know the grammar. Yeah, like that's part of yeah. the, the tool. Yes. Again, it, this is something that I think that if someone is going to volunteer to be the mentor, to be the regional or area representative to oversee, that they should have a, a maximum amount of people that they're going to work with, but that they could be that person that oh, that, yeah. that interacted on the papers with the yeah. uh, rab- rabbinic intern and go back. I, I can tell you from my experience, and I'm not going to mention who my person was when I went through the ordination program, but his requirement for communication was send me an email every month that says I'm still alive. You know, that, and, and honestly, that was like, I'm, I'm still here. We're still going. That was all he wanted. Yeah, he didn't yeah. want to know. What, what was going on in our community? What was going on with my family? What was it? He just just let me know you're still here. Yeah, and and there, it's got to be more than that in the yeah. process. And I think that's what I'm getting at. Is like it. We have enough rabbis in the messianic movement to where there's no reason why we couldn't have each rabbi taking three or four classes and just being responsible for grading any papers that come in related to that class. So it, it can be done. You know. You know, have you know again? Have someone come in and do a do kind of an overview of teaching how to do this, because it really is. If they want to continue to use those, I think it is important that they yeah. actually have people communicating yeah. with the students who are have doing a those system classes. of feedback, and mm-hmm. it can't. It shouldn't. I mean, I'm not saying it can't be pass fail, but my feedback shouldn't just be that I passed. Yeah, you should be because I question whether or not somebody even read my paper. Yeah, because like if you just get a fail, like. And no feedback. No one calls you to talk to you. Like, and what are the? And what are the? Yeah. What are the? Yeah. Why did I fail? You know, why what, did I fail? Right. Why, why did, did I pass? Why, why did I pass? Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. 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 And, and again, it goes back to this idea: we we can either have separate rabbis that do that, or a rabbi that is uh, mentoring a uh, intern at his congregation that could do that and interact with their papers and help them. Yeah. And but, I think you can have them interact with their papers. Um, what, what I'm specifically saying is like, there's so many classes at this point that are recorded that it would be difficult for yeah. one person to, okay, why, you know, I, I understand the title of this class, but why did you write this? And it may be a response to something that the teacher said. Whereas if you have someone who's actually, you know, the steering committee said, hey, Rabbi so-and-so, we're giving you a year. Heads up. Watch these 10 classes. You're responsible for these 10. To that end, I think the fact that there are so many shows us sort of some of the degree of um, streamlining things that's needed. Because most of what's available have been the recordings from the last 30 years or whatever. Like yeah. there's all of the regionals have a yeshiva messiah has two yeshivas used to rabbis would have a yeshiva rabbi conference had a yeshiva available etc and those are all recorded and available for uh for distance but there's no core there's no curriculum you know, core curriculum like i i think first off they should go okay we need x number of this category of classes for each person x number of this category of classes x number of this and anything in the database that doesn't fit into one of those categories needs to be tossed. And anything over a certain age needs to be tossed and redone. One, because the videography is going to be terrible. The audio is going to be terrible. And have seen some two, of the ones that were recorded in the 90s. Yeah. And two, because, look, things have developed. Things have grown. We've learned. We've, you know, uh, so I think it's important to constantly updating. And with this, like, not only should there be a better organizational structure for the education side of raising up 
rabbis uh, and, and leaders in general, because I think we could reasonably develop something for youth leaders and for worship leaders and so on, which I know you were a part of something trying to do similar to that, Rabbi Toby, um, but the uh, for, for worship leaders. But I think there needs to be in the ordination um, expectations a requirement for furthering education, continuing education. Every year there should be, or at least every two years, there should be a minimum baseline for continuing education. You've got to yeah. go and take one class in whatever it is in this area or one yeshiva, pick one off the wall or whatever. Yeah. And I I mean, I'd even like to see something to the effect of where you have so many, you know, continue, with continuing education, if you have so many rabbis every year submitting an essay on a topic to whoever's above them, whether it's, you know, they're the rabbi, the shepherd of shepherds or even the steering committee, um, one or two a year, and then those essays get put into a published, like that's owned by you know the the messianic, which you know structure, and that's something that everyone can read. You know, it it, it it it's it's published, and then you know if if someone just you know sitting in a pew every Shabbat wants to see what the rabbis around right. a rabbinic journal like you would have a medical journal sure. or yeah. something, something that... peer reviewed and right yeah. I think that'd be good. Yeah, and we tried to start an internship program over a summer internship program in in throughout both organizations, the union and the IMCS. We had raised the funds to fund the entire thing, so the congregations weren't responsible for anything other than housing the intern and making sure they had food. Uh, all the other expenses, including a stipend for the intern, were covered already. Uh, by our group that was establishing this, and we we sought out six congregations that would host an intern for two we each each congregation would have to host uh, two interns over a summer, and we could not find six congregations to start the pilot program that would be willing to house an intern for two weeks over the summer for a, a one month where they would have two weeks of one stu- uh, intern, two weeks of another, so that six interns would have the opportunity to visit. Uh, six uh, different congregations. Yeah, uh, or two interns would each have opportunity to go to, to different congregations. So they would experience, for instance, our congregation is going to be structured a little different than Rabbi David's and so on for the other congregations. They would see how the rabbis do, mirror them through the, the week so they could see what they how they plan, what their schedule is, what their organization structure is, so that they would see hands-on what Messianic ministry actually is outside of a classroom. Uh, and we couldn't get six congregations yeah. to uh, to volunteer to host that. So, so part of the problem that I see with what we're talking about is that we and sometimes we need to get the leaders to get beyond behind this stuff even if it's not going to necessarily benefit their congregation it benefits the movement as a whole and so when we talk about internships when we talk about education we talk about rabbis grading papers or interacting and stuff there's there's some kind of switch that's going to have to click in the minds of those in our movement, whether it becomes from a fellowship to a denomination, but the structural change of saying, I'm doing this because the movement yeah. is going to benefit rather than I'm doing this because my congregation necessarily will. Yeah, and that's the weakness of the fellowship, or one of the weaknesses of the fellowship model is, you know, with that, you're like asking, and in some cases, practically begging 
people to get on board with you know helping to to move the movement further along whereas in a denominational model it's more you know by the way you are expected this summer to host an intern or whatever and the the steering committee or council whatever above that has the authority to say do this and you have to do it because if you don't then you there are ramifications for that but uh, and, and that's one of the things is that, you know, there's people talk about future, people talk about moving forward. But then when it comes to actually getting that question, you know, they, they get that phone call saying, hey, you know, you gave a great speech, this last rabbi's conference on, you know, uh, the, the future of the Messianic movement, you know, uh, the future of you know, training up new young leaders. I have uh, here. Here's the thing we have. It's funded. We have the money. We just need you to host a. A student, and they're like, well, well, I mean, uh, yeah, and and that's that's where the the weakness of the fellowship model, yeah. one of the weaknesses, definitely comes through, because you can get out of expectations. Whereas in the Book of Acts and in many of the books of the Berkhadasha, like when when Paul or Peter or the council laid down expectations, those expectations were expected to be met, or else. Um, yep. So, I think that um, too with the other looking at the other end of it a big problem that i see with with being so heavy-handed on the education is i'm not saying that everybody who comes out of an educational program whether it's master's degree or even um, a doctorate that they come out like holy and pious because education doesn't do that for you you know the holy spirit does the lord does but there is this air of like if you don't do if you don't go down this path of education, mm-hmm. you will not be addressed as a rabbi. And I think that's insulting. Now, do I have a problem with that? Yes, but it's honestly, I would rather be the guy not called rabbi than be the guy who's not calling someone rabbi because that person is a little bit closer to being the Pharisee on the front row that Yeshua was talking about. I don't like the pious air of well, no, we're not going to call you a rabbi because you didn't take all these classes and spend all this money. And I'm like... Or or you don't carry our ordination, so right. you're not a rabbi. <laughs> right, and I think that's dumb. And I think that... I do think that the Messiah would absolutely laugh in the face of some of that stuff and say, this is ridiculous. Yeah. This Rab- is just stupid. Yeah. You know? Anyway. Rab- rabbi Jeffrey Seif calls him PhDities. PhD right. PhDs, you know, the people who think that their education puts them into a higher level of yeah. uh, humanity. Right. Yeah, it should put you in a higher level of humility. And that, if, that, if that's anything I've learned yeah. and, and right. having been to school and any education is that, like, no, I, I should be it, yeah. more humble. <laughs> I mean, it can increase your knowledge. I'm not saying that yeah. you can – I mean, there are biblical scholars that can run circles – around me with the Bible and stuff and with the Torah that that's that, but that doesn't make one acceptable to God and it doesn't make yeah. one usable. Yeah. It also can ruin your humility. It can like it can make you a really arrogant person. Yeah. I have this degree from yeah. this. Right. And I will say that, that it does, you know, there I've seen both sides of that. Like yeah. I've, I've seen I've also seen the people who I mean they have no problem slandering a biblical scholar simply for the fact that they are a biblical scholar, and I've seen many biblical scholars who are very humble. But again, because it's not just the information that they know they're familiar with, but they're familiar with God. They like they know God, and they walk with God, yeah. and so that gives them that humility. But yeah, I, I've seen both sides. I've seen the super, the super elitist mentality from yeah. the educate the educated side, and I've also seen the well, we don't listen to scholars because they go to yeah. them like, propaganda school. Yeah, right. like I said, yeah, I would rather be 
someone that someone doesn't deem like you're not a rabbi. I'd rather be that guy that's being called that than someone who's on the other side of that line than yeah. saying, no, we don't consider that. I'm like, I'd rather not be you. Yeah. yeah. Because, right. you know. I have a, a an acquaintance who's a pastor of a large congregation who doesn't teach at his congregation. Uh, very rarely he'll get up and, and talk for a few minutes, but he's got people that are outstanding teachers mm-hmm. that do the teaching and do the preaching, and he does the interpersonal fellowship, relational yeah. vis- home visits, things like that. He works with those leaders to shepherd them to to guide them and they've got an excellent loving community uh but he doesn't have all the degrees and all that he's got people yeah. around him that are educated and taught and and uh went through schools and all but his whole he's shepherding and loving his people and yeah. then he's got other people that do the things that we would typically say, man, he's a good pastor because he's a great teacher or because he's got th- wrote this many books or he did this stuff, when the reality is a great pastor is a shepherd that shepherds his flock. Now, again, that doesn't mean that I'm saying that nobody should be a pastor that teaches or yeah. has. But the uh, as Toby's talking about, he's really talking about the heart of the leader, yeah, and you know, are are we really about serving? You know, Yeshua took his outer garments off and washed his disciples' feet. That's that's leadership, yeah. Uh, regardless of uh, education or uh, or that, and, and of course, I'm not saying Yeshua wasn't educated. He wrote the book, so. Uh, but I'm just saying it's important that we don't lose these things in the process. Yeah. So we're all for education and per, and and promoting solid education, good education, but not at the expense of humility. And I yeah. think I think Toby made a great point about that. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else? I have a couple more things. Yeah. In my throw mind. My- I'm, I'm you know, like back to you know kind of with the education thing like. You know, people. We do kind of. We we note that the apostles were, you know, not of men of letters, as you know, Yeshua is accused of being. But you know, when you walk literally in the dust of God for you know several years, like I, I think you're qualified <laughs> above and beyond um, to to understand you know what it is you're supposed to be teaching, which is the words of your rabbi, and we follow after the rabbi of rabbis. We follow after the teacher of teachers. So, uh, you know, that, I mean, education should be important to us, at least in that sense. And again, doesn't mean you're getting degrees, but it means you are sitting at the feet of someone. You are yeah. learning, uh, you know, his words and, and walking after him. Uh, both Yeshua and the rabbi that you get to sit under. And I brought it up last uh, episode. But I'd like to see, in terms of rabbinic education, I'd like to see, you know, your project idea, the idea of the interns, you know, transferring around, come about for people who think God may be calling them into ministry. You know, go and spend get a taste of it. Yeah, yeah, get a taste of it. Go spend a summer between, you know, in while you're in college, you know, one summer. You may not, you, or, or you may just be, um, you may just be a young young kid you may be 17 or 18 not having left the house yet you're still in high school um and you know you think you're about to go in that direction well it's a great time in your your years to go and see get a taste of it to see if god is god calling me to this is god calling me to you know go and be at a hospital at two in the morning to pray with someone is god calling you know me to be available for funerals and for weddings and to celebrate the joys and the sorrows of life with people is god calling me to teach his word uh taste it 
and then move into the actual like you know get in that pipeline and i what i'd like to see with the pipeline is actually um kind of like what um you did you know actually go off to school like yeah get out from under your parents like yeshua's disciples didn't stay up under their mother their 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 parents they joined with their rabbi move be at a congregation and this is a, a strength of, the, of the, the the more structured model the denominational model is you can you know the fund and i mentioned this last episode the funds would be there to be able to help support a young person especially if they're unmarried and don't have kids be able to support them in actually living there and being there and sitting at the feet at the feet of that rabbi um and learning those things while he accrues whatever educational requirements are set forth by um you know whatever leadership whether it's a council or a uh yeah, but whatever, you know, and able to do that for even if it's just a couple of years, that's yeah a lot, especially for you know a nineteen twenty year old person. Yeah, and then by the end of you get through that, you know, and you get ordained, like you've actually done discipleship. You've sat at the feet of a rabbi. You've walked in the dust of a yeah. rabbi. So yeah. I can tell you, I know a number of younger individuals. Whether they were talking. Yeah, because in the Messianic movement, the the focus is only on millennials. But whether we're talking millennials who are now realistically in their thirties or uh, or older, or uh, yeah. or crowds younger than them, going down even to like getting out of high school age, I've talked to a number of people who have just straight up told me, "I feel like I have a calling on my life to be a Messianic Jewish rabbi." However. And this is the reality when you're talking about young leaders currently. Yes, there are those coming straight out of high school like I was that were willing to, to step in that. But for the most part, you're talking about people in their their, their early mid-20s uh, to their early 30s who may very well have a family started already mm-hmm. or be starting a family. And uh, and I've had, had young young guys who have been very interested in, in being a rabbi who feel like – and just straight up said, I feel like God has called me to be a Messianic rabbi. However – I cannot afford to do it financially because the congregations can't pay me and my family needs to eat and I cannot afford to. And this is something that I, I, I talk about a lot is, you know, that they, they would say I can't afford to to um, go and serve under a rabbi and train and be built up, making no money with heavy expectations and then also work a full-time job outside of that yeah. because then I can't be there for my family. Yeah. And that's the reality of it is and we've talked about it on this uh, the show before is when you're in ministry, especially congregational ministry, when you're in ministry, it is a full-time job whether you like it or not. This is why Paul says the worker is worth his wages, right? Whether you when you're in ministry no matter what it is absolutely a full-time gig. You are dedicated to that kind of Rabbi Jonathan brought up the, the, the 2 a.m. hospital visits, the births, the deaths, the funerals, the, the, the planning for events and services, the uh, uh, navigating marriage crises and family crises and all of these kinds of things. Um, it is a full-time gig. And if you have a young family, which most people, potential targets for young leadership, most people are going to have young families, um, then in order to go into ministry, you're going going to have to be full-time in that role, but you're likely also going to have to be full-time outside of that in a job, which means the only people losing isn't the congregation, it's your family. And if your family is losing out, then you've got, you know, Paul makes it very clear, you've got to take care of your household first yeah. before you can sow into the community, right? They need to look at your household as the example of your shepherding, and if they can't do that, then it's a problem. And so most of the Messianic movement 
the way we're set up right now, most of the Messianic movement, the individual congregation cannot afford to pay a salary to a younger leader wanting to come in and be an assistant rabbi or a rabbinic intern or whatever you want to call it. Um, they're, they're not able to afford that. And there's no infrastructure set up on the grander scale in the fellowship model or, or whatever else. There's no infrastructure set up for the organizations, the congregational organizations, to be able to assist in that. And so because of that, you end up with a, a ton of young people who truly fill a calling to Messianic ministry that either never answer it because they, they feel like they have to take care of the family, which is a valid thing, yeah. and the congregation cannot help them with that, or they end up in church ministry instead of in a Messianic synagogue because the churches have money, and they've got the infrastructure set up, and they're willing to pay and to do the training and to do the experiential side and to give you the education. They're willing to be a part of that. And look, there's a lot about the church world that doesn't really jive in the Messianic community, and I get that. But as Messianic Judaism as a whole, we've got to stop being afraid of learning how to glean from what the church does do right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I want to make two quick comments on that uh, thing that you were just talking about. And that is that, first of all, I think that we definitely need to, as a movement, pull resources to help fund young people. But the other side of that is I think we're deceiving ourselves when we say we can't afford to hire somebody and pay them. In my experience, now there are congregations that are too small. Uh, it's just reality. But most congregations, in, in my experience, and I've seen this happen over and over at our congregation, when we saw a need to put somebody in a position, when we grew to a place where we need to hire somebody for the congregation, you can look and say, we need this, but we can't afford it, and just stay where you are and do without those things, or you can step out and trust. We tell our congregants, give to God and trust that he'll take care of you. Give to God and and he'll meet your needs. Be faithful to God and he'll provide. But then when it comes to our congregations, we say we can't afford to do what we feel God is calling us. In other words, when we were ready to hire uh, an assistant rabbi, we hired an assistant rabbi and trusted that God would grow our congregation as a result of our listening to him and provide that. And so our congregation, again, is unique. And, and, and please know we, we make plenty of mistakes. We're not perfect in any way. But we have five full-time office or th- four full-time office people, a part-time office person, myself, Rabbi Jonathan, a part-time yard and maintenance person, and, and God provides every month not only to pay for all of the needs that they have to meet their needs, and we pay them like a real salary. It's not, you know, you're in ministry, so starve to death. Yeah. Um, yeah. But we did that because we trusted. When, if you hear from God, I'm not telling you if you don't hear from God, but if you hear from God, when you grow to a point where you can only do so much, and then you have to either extend out and grow or decide we're just going to stay where we are. And so I think it takes both. I think one of it is the congregation has to have the faith to step out and say, we're going to – and talk to your people and say, we're going to hire someone, which means we're trusting that you're going to be faithful. 
and and do this. And then the other side of that is, as an organization, the congregations that are uh, a little larger and are able to give should give, and, and the little ones should give what they can to fund so both sides meet in the middle. Yeah, and you know, and leaders <clears throat> leaders need to not be afraid to ask. And I know a lot of damage has been done specifically in this country when it comes to religious people asking for money. Like I'm, I'm not excusing that. There's been a lot of damage done, a lot of real damage done. Um, but leaders don't need to be afraid to ask uh, for money because you know we're not afraid to at the conferences. So you know why can't we at our congregations? Why you know why can't we ask people? Because here's the deal. Um, I was listening to a podcast recently, and they were going over the statistics of how many people, and this was churches, not Messianic congregations, how many people in churches tithe on on average. Or, or just, even if you don't want to call it a tithe, how many people give a percentage to their congregation, their fellowship, whatever. And, and the number was staggering. It was like 4% actively tithe. It's 4 like to 6% le- Like less than 10% of people actually yeah, give really- consistently, which is, I, I was I, I was shocked. Like it, was, it was one of those like, you know, your stomach drops to your feet. And like, of all the things, like we could, all the problems that we have that are related to not having enough... You know, so don't be. We could do if we if we had enough. So, so leaders, rabbis, don't be afraid to ask your people because a lot of times your people will step up. You know, even if they're not giving a ten percent, if you even just had like pledges, be like, if you're in our congregation, if you're a member, would you mind pledging this much? Or, hey, I am in my late sixties, and we need to hire an assistant rabbi who is going to take over in the next you know ten years potentially. Um. I need some people to pledge this much a month, this much a month, to be able to afford a salary to take care of this new leader we're going to bring in. Um, that's a completely reasonable thing to do. Like, don't be afraid to act. Like, people are coming and people are people are getting from you, teaching and your ministry, your prayers, your time, your empathy, your compassion. Your, your your family's time, so don't be afraid to ask them uh, when you need. And people, don't be afraid to ask your leaders if you, what you can give. You know, and even if it's not money, it may be time. You know, they may they may need more time. Don't be afraid to volunteer. Step. We could. I mean, the things we could do with pe- if people if more would volunteer, if mm-hmm. more people would step up um, to do. And the thing is, and I, I'm not afraid to say it, I. I despise when people come into the Messianic movement from churches and they come with this attitude of, well, I, I'm not tithing and I'm not giving. You know, they may have been great tithers at their church before they got, you know, into wherever position. A lot of people come from bad places into the Messianic movement. Like they get disillusioned with the church or they find out maybe the church taught some things that weren't entirely true, a couple things, or maybe they lied to me about this, and then they come in, and they're so disillusioned, they're coming from such a place of hurt and fear that they don't, they just they just don't give, and they come, and all they do is take, and they take the time, they take the worship, and they and then they, they expect it to be catered to them, and, I, and I've seen this dozens of times, specifically, I know it happens in churches too, but specifically in Messianic, um, you know, Hebrew Roots congregations, it's like they come and oh, I don't like that music. The music's supposed to be catered to me. Oh, and they compl- and they complain and they want things to be changed, but then they don't actually. There's no skin in the game for them. Like they're not. They just show up and exist, you know. And you just can't show up and exist. Like if you're going to be there, if you're going to be a member of a congregation, if you're going to be a 
cor- part of that corporate body that is worshiping and being the window into the kingdom of God for that community. You, you you do need to give. or And you need to find out how you can give of yourself. It doesn't just have to be money. Again, it can be of your time, of, of volunteering. So, but don't be afraid to ask leaders. Yeah. So as, as we're getting ready to wrap up, I want to ask Rabbi Toby and Rabbi Jonathan one question, give them time to respond to it. Mm-hmm. And that is this. Both of you are in the educational process right now to become ordained. If there was one thing that the Messianic movement, that the IMCS or even our congregations individually could do to make that process easier, to help you to do something, uh, what would that one thing be? And uh, you guys think about it for just a, a second. But and, and I'm saying this because some of the people listening right now that will listen to this may be somebody who's looking for an opportunity to do something. And uh, giving, because you guys, I'm not in that place. Uh, Rabbi Davis not in that place, but you guys are both in that place, and we're talking about it on this episode. So if there's one thing that the organization that regionally could be done or nationally or, or whatever to help you with your process, uh, what would that one thing be? You mean like the current process I'm in now? The process you're should... in right now, because other people are going to be in that place. And if we if we know how we can help you, that means we're prepared prepared to help someone that steps into that place in the future. If that makes sense, mm-hmm. yeah, I think I answered this. I answered a similar question last episode, I think, and that's mine. Would be there needs to be a a, a system set up, a structure where where uh, people, young, especially young people, um, but like David said. Um, People also with families can be supported and are able to live and eat and be sheltered um, and can uh, be brought to a community if they're not already living there um, to sit at the feet of the rabbi there and to follow him. Uh, right, but in in your case, you've got most of that. So yeah, yeah I do. So I'm asking specifically, oh, in my case, in your, okay, specifically. specifically to you, what in what one thing hmm. could the organization, could Messian Judaism, could people do to make your situation? Because yeah. both of you are in different, similar but different situations hmm. in the sure. in the process. Um, I, I wish there was an option when it comes to the uh, as as we currently sit with the yeshivot i wish there was an option to only do live yeshiva classes so i wish they would offer more at the conferences so and not just cuz i know messiah offers at least two usually a week but if they could offer at the regional ones more you know so that for example i would be totally cool if i'm in the pipeline of ordination I will give up going to the different sessions. I will give up like a lot of the social time that you get during the day to take a class a day. And it's three classes. Like you could knock, you, boom, boom, boom. You can knock out three classes. Now that would be a lot. That'd be intense. But I would rather have that where I can engage relationally with that rabbi or, or yeah. teacher or professor teaching there at the thing, get my questions answered live in real time before I engage in writing whatever paper is uh, required of me for that class. An easy way to do that would simply be rather than, I mean, you can provide them at the conference also, but also provide them throughout the year, maybe on a quarterly basis as a online, uh, like a go-to-meeting or or Zoom or whatever style class, but you do it like, you know, 
three hours at a time, do a three-hour session, and then the next week a three-hour session or whatever over two or three weeks sure. instead of all in once, and then you've got the time to sure. converse. But, yeah, that's a great idea. Uh, I just think more more regular and, and deliberate um, and reliable communication, I guess, with your mentor. That's uh, probably all I would say that would make something easier. Okay. Um, or the regional director, I guess, maybe. Yeah, yeah again, so we're so kind of dealing with what we've talked about is relational connection. And, and part of that, even with this live class, is this relational connection and a more structured educational plan and internship yeah. plan uh, seems to be what you guys are both uh, saying would be helpful in the process. Well, with that, we appreciate you joining us for this episode. Uh, as we've said um, a few times now, this is going to be a series of conversations that we have, not specifically on education, but as we ourselves kind of work through what we would like to see uh, or what we think would be beneficial for the uh, the Mass Anti-Jewish movement in uh, uh, out of going from a fellowship model to more of a structured model or uh, even better structuring the fellowship model if that's what's deemed uh, the best option. But just some ideas we have at how we could better uh, uh, develop the Messianic Jewish movement for a uh, a legitimate longevity of existence and purpose and, and fulfilling our greater calling. So thank you for joining us. We will see you next time. Shalom. Thank you for listening to the Messy Antics podcast. Make sure to subscribe so you can be notified every time we drop a new episode. And be sure to follow and interact with us on social media at Messy Antics Podcast.